Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a saying which probably most of you know, ignorance is bliss. It basically means that sometimes not knowing something can leave you happier than if you knew it. And there's a certain amount of truth to that, isn't there? Nowadays, through the internet, through technology, we can know almost instantly everything that's happening in the world. But that knowledge often leaves us sad, frustrated, depressed, or anxious. Because there's really, if you listen to the news, there's a lot of misery all around us. Ignorance of the misery around us may at times be bliss. It may even at times be necessary and healthy for us to limit how, how much knowledge, how much information about all of this we, we take in. But ignorance of the misery within us is not bliss. Last week we looked at the only and matchless comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. And, and one of the things our Bible-based Heidelberg Catechism says, one of the things it says that you need to know in order to have and to enjoy this comfort of belonging to Christ, in order to live and die happily in it, is how great your sins and miseries are. And that means then that your ignorance of your sin, my ignorance of my sin and misery, is not bliss. It's folly. But here's the problem. By nature, we are ignorant of our sin and misery. And, and by nature, we want to be ignorant. Just, just think about the last time your spouse or one of your parents confronted you about a sin in, in your life, something you did wrong. How, how did you react? I didn't. It wasn't on purpose. But did you see what she did? Sound familiar? Our natural reaction when someone confronts us about a sin is to deny it, to downplay it, or to, to defend it. And that's why both the scriptures and the catechism insist on our need to know our misery. Not because knowing it earns our salvation, and not to limit salvation to those who, who reach a certain level of, of knowledge of their sins and misery, whatever that level would, could be. But it insists on our need to know our misery, to bring us to see our need of Christ. You see, if we don't need Him, we won't seek Him. So we need to know the greatness of our sin and misery in the sense that we finally own our sin and sinfulness. No denial, no minimizing, and no defending. So that we own it and so that we seek Christ. But how can, how can I know it? Well, with God's help, that's the question we hope to consider this afternoon from Scripture and Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism under the theme, Christ as Prophet teaches us our misery Christ as prophet teaches us our misery. First, we will see the standard he uses. Secondly, the perfection he demands. And third, the confession he calls for. So first, let's consider the standard he uses. Question three of Lord's Day 2 asks, From where, whence, or from where do you know your misery? 
Or you could, you could say, what source reveals to you your misery? And, and the Bible-based answer is, out of the law of God. That's the standard by which we know our misery and our sin. As Paul says in Romans 3, verse 20, which we, which we read, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law has other uses as well, of course. We have, in, in the third part of the catechism, the law is, is explained and expounded as a way of thankfulness to God, as a rule of life and thankfulness to God. But here, it's a standard of the knowledge, the standard by which we know our misery. And it's a standard that Christ also uses as prophet in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, when one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asks him, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, in reading Matthew 22, in reading this, this passage, we need to remember what Jesus said earlier in the book of Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 20. And listen to what he said to the multitudes as he was preaching his Sermon on the Mount. He said this, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does it tell us? It tells us, congregation, that the Pharisees, who seemed so concerned about keeping God's law, hadn't kept it and couldn't keep it. And so whenever Christ uses the this, this standard of, his, of God's law with reference to the self-righteous Pharisees, also here in our passage, Pharisees who were trying to trap him in his words, he's using it not simply to answer their questions, but to seek to show them their misery. And that same standard, the standard of God's law, is what he uses still today to graciously teach us our misery. But maybe you say, why? What, what, what is it about the law that, that Christ uses that to, to teach us our misery? I mean, can't, can't we see our misery well enough? Well, the truth is, we can't. The truth is that nothing except God's law can show us the greatness of our misery. Our misery, you see, is not learned by comparing ourselves to other people. It's not learned by comparing our lives to a certain standard of living. If we do that, we, it might make us feel miserable or it might make us feel proud. But the problem with those standards, the problem with all other standards we use to compare ourselves to is that none of them gets to the real seriousness and the root cause of our misery. The law of God is the only standard that does because it alone reveals God's will to us. To us as men and women, boys and girls who have been created in the image of God to image God. And here, we need to make clear, of course, that this standard we're talking about is the moral law of God. That's the standard Christ uses to show us our misery. Sometimes we speak also of the ceremonial and civil laws, but both of those were temporary and, and limited in scope because the ceremonial law pointed in, to Christ and was fulfilled in Christ. And the civil law, too, was, was specifically for Israel when it was a nation ruled by God in contrast to other nations. But the moral law, the moral law is so much broader because it encompasses everyone. It is all-embracing. It reveals the will of God for all time and for all people, also for us here tonight. Because as people, 
All of us have been created in the image of God. And therefore, it's that law alone, that standard alone, that Christ uses to teach us the greatness of our sin and misery, which we need to know in order to have and enjoy the comfort of belonging to Him. Oh, let's not avoid God's law then. But let us treasure it. Treasure it as Christ's tool of conviction. Not only because it's the only standard, but also because it's a fixed standard. It's fixed and unchangeable because it is the law of God. And God Himself is unchangeable. You know, children, maybe sometimes you like to, to, to compare yourself to your mom or your dad to see how tall are you compared to them. And you, you probably can't wait for the day that you can be just as tall as them or maybe, maybe even a bit taller. Hopefully, you think. Your parents, you see, are your standard. They, they, they're what you compare yourself to because you know they're probably not going to grow any taller themselves. And just like that, the law of God is our standard that measures our obedience to God. And, and just like your parents' height it isn't going to change, so God's law doesn't change. It cannot change. It is fixed. The Pharisees in Jesus' day didn't treat it that way. Now, when the lawyer asked that question in Matthew 22, which is the great commandment in the law, that was a pretty familiar question. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day, they constantly debated that question. They, they had expanded the law to include hundreds of commands, and they loved to argue about which one was the greatest, which one was most essential. And so here they thought, well, maybe we can bring this, this question to Jesus, and no matter what way he answers, he's, somebody's not going to be happy with him. They They thought they could trap him, but they totally fail because Christ doesn't arbitrarily select one commandment from their list. No, instead he declares the root and the essence and the sum of the whole law, love. The very thing the Pharisees lacked. Ouch. Jesus exposes the Pharisees with his answer for playing fast and loose with God's law, for treating God's law as flexible instead of fixed. And in fact, in the next chapter, in Matthew 23, verse 23, he even condemns them exactly for that. He pronounces woe on the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because they pay all kinds of tithes, but have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Omit it. They thought God's law, they treated God's law as flexible. But the standard Christ uses to teach us our misery, this law of God is not flexible, it is fixed. And the reason it is fixed is, is, is because it is perfectly righteous. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Psalm 19 verse 8, It says almost the same thing. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure because it's from God. And He is perfectly righteous. Congregation, how do you view, how do you treat the law of God? You know, sometimes we we can have debates over this or that commandment, what it permits or what it forbids. What, What are you allowed to do on Sunday? And, and, and what are you not allowed to do? So on and, 
and so forth. And there can be a place for good and healthy discussion about these things, but let us always be careful. Let us always remember that all our traditions and all our debates and all our differences never change God's law. It is fixed. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18? Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So that's why when we hear the law in church every Lord's Day, yes, it can become custom, it can become routine, it's easy for our minds to wander, but we should seek to hear it with reverence and humility, asking the Lord to show us our sin and our misery, the sin and misery that we're by nature blind to and want to be blind to. But there's one more thing we need to see about the standard that Christ uses. It's not just the only standard and a fixed standard. It's an inescapable standard. No one can escape the standard of God's law. Paul makes clear that even the Gentiles who who never had God's law in written form can't escape the standard because he says in Romans 2, verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The point is, congregation, you cannot escape the standard of God's law. If the Gentiles who did not have the written law of God cannot escape it, how much, how much less can we escape that standard who have God's written law? And, and Paul goes on in that, in that chapter, and elsewhere in that chapter, he, he makes clear that those who have the law of God, those who have the word of God, and don't keep it, will be worthy of, of greater punishment than those who, who did not have the written form. We cannot escape God's law because we cannot escape God. But too often we try. And one of the ways we try is by imagining that Christ will be satisfied with less than perfection. Maybe our good effort will be good enough. If I just do enough good things to outweigh my bad, then, and if I try hard, then Christ will accept me. Then God will accept me. That brings us to our second thought as we look at how Christ as prophet teaches us our misery. We've seen the standard he uses. Now let's look at the perfection he demands. In question four of Lord's Day 2 asks that question, what does the law of God require of us? And the answer, Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And in case you're wondering, you might notice in the, the catechism adds the phrase with all thy strength. Matthew doesn't have that, but it is in the parallel account in Mark. So I invite you to look that up yourself in your own time. But what we want to see is here is that Christ's answer wasn't anything new. The perfection he demands is, is, is the perfection God's law demands. It's the perfection God has always demanded. And those commands to love God and to love our neighbor, they didn't come from, from out of nowhere. They came straight from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and, and Leviticus 19 verse 18. 
His answer isn't anything new. But it is a demanding answer. It shows that Christ Jesus demands nothing less than perfection. You shall love. Not you shall try to love. Notice with me several things about this perfection he demands. First, it's not merely outward. It's also inward. And the context of of Jesus' words underscores this. The Lord here in, in Matthew 22 was surrounded by the Pharisees, surrounded by Jewish leaders who had the law and the prophets. They had studied the written word of God. They knew the law. They were zealous for it, in a sense. But they had externalized it. Jesus says again in the next chapter that they outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And that doesn't satisfy Christ. His answer to the Pharisees' question in verses 37 to 40 shows that he doesn't demand simply outward, simply ritualistic obedience. The law is, is, not, is not merely a list of do's and of don'ts, It goes much deeper. It demands love. And children, can you see love? No, you can't, can you? You can see the fruits of love. You can see the evidence of love. But you can't see love itself. Love is something inside us. And the love that Jesus demands refers especially to a a warm affection for, a delight in, an interest in someone. And, And and it's not just a feeling either. It's, it's not something that just happens to us, like something like we speak of falling in love today. You know, love, as Jesus uses it, as Jesus refers it to it, is an act of the will. It's an affection and an act of the will. So if we put these two things together, love is a, you could say love is a committed affection for and an affectionate commitment to someone else. Love is a committed affection for and an affectionate commitment to someone else. That's the love for God and our neighbor that Christ demands. Because that's what the standard of God's law demands. And the Pharisees needed to hear that. And so do we. You see, it's very easy for all of us to reduce God's law to a kind of checklist so that we can, we can finish our week and we can look back on our, on our day or on our week and, and we can say, I did what my parents told me to do. I didn't murder anyone. I didn't commit adultery. I went to church twice on Sunday and I didn't do any unnecessary work. It's so easy to do that. But what about your heart? Lord Jesus spoke many times about how we can break these commandments in our heart where no one sees but God. You think of the Sermon on the Mount and how he taught us us that the unrighteous anger in our heart breaks his commandment, you shall not murder. Or that the lustful desire of our heart breaks the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Or you can think of the the inward grumbling uh, at the chores that you're, and the work that you've been given and how that breaks his command to honor those in authority. Or you can think of how often our worship of God, yes, we may come to church, but how often isn't, isn't it distracted and half-hearted? Who of us can say that we lived yesterday, that we lived last week, that we lived today with a heart 
full of love, committed affection for, and affectionate, affectionate commitment to God and to our neighbor. That's what Christ demands. He demands love. Love to God and love to our, our neighbor. Not just outward, but inward perfection. The second thing about this perfection that he demands is that it must be total. It's all or nothing. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, Jesus says, with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. The point is that you must fully and sincerely love the Lord your God with the whole of your being and every faculty and fiber of your being. All of everything we think, all of everything we say, all of everything we do and even feel must flow out of this one controlling motivation. Love for God. Christ demands our unswerving, undivided love and loyalty to God and to his law. That's where obedience to God starts. This is the first and great commandment. If we haven't loved God like that congregation, have we obeyed Him at all? But Christ goes on. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He's not saying, Christ is not saying that loving our neighbor is less essential He's saying that love to our neighbor flows out of love to God. Not not the other way around. Love to God is first. And it's out of that love to God that, that we love our neighbor. We are not commanded to love our neighbor in the same way we are commanded to love God. God alone is worthy of total devotion and, and worship. But we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that, that as yourself is not... You shall love your neighbor a little bit as yourself. It's it's totally as yourself. It means sacrificially and unselfishly caring for others as much as we care for ourselves. How is your love for God? How is your love for your neighbor? The perfection Christ demands is total. And it's also all-inclusive. You notice how Jesus concludes his answer in verse 40 of Matthew 22. He says this, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's a profound statement. We could probably hear a whole sermon on on it. But but let me just bring out one lesson from from it. It's this. Christ's demand for perfection, his demand for, for inward and outward and total love does not set aside God's law. It supports it. And so love for, for God and our neighbor must be all-inclusive. It must be reflected in a life of reverent and constant obedience to his law, to all of God's ten commandments. Does that describe your life? You can't avoid that question. You see, the perfection he demands is also an individual perfection. Thou, you, singular, shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thou, you singular, shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ demands inward and outward and total and all-inclusive perfection of each and every individual. He demands it of, of, of you over here and of, of you over there and of you over there and over there. He demands it of me over, over here. He demands it of all of us, each and every one. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably gotten mail before that is unaddressed or addressed to the current resident. What do you usually do with that mail? You throw it away, don't you? You, Sometimes you don't even look at it because it's not personally addressed. Our name isn't on it. But beloved, we we cannot do that with Christ's demand. We cannot throw it away. His demand in our text this evening, the demand of inward and outward and total and all-inclusive perfection is personally addressed to each one of you and to me. It has your name on it. Have you fulfilled, can you fulfill his demand for perfection? There's only one right answer. And that's what we want to look at now in our third point, the confession Christ calls for. The confession Christ calls for as he teaches us our misery. Question five of Lord's Day 2 asks, Canst thou or can you keep all these things perfectly? And the answer in the catechism is in no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's the confession Christ calls for. A personal confession that devastates all hope of our fulfilling Christ's demands. You see, in the first place, it's a confession of of your and of my total inability. Total inability to satisfy Christ's demand of perfection in no wise. That means not at all. Keeping these things perfectly, fulfilling his demand for perfection is absolutely impossible. And that's devastating, you see, to our pride, isn't it? You think of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Remember what he said when the Lord Jesus listed several of the commandments after he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. He thought that he had kept God's commandments, but Jesus then shows him, doesn't he, that he completely failed to meet the law's demands by his idolizing of his possessions. The reality is that no one, Jesus even says, says in that passage there that no one is good except God. No one is able to fulfill God's law of love to him and to our neighbor. If you think you can, if you think you can fulfill God's demand for perfection, you're living a lie. Maybe it sounds harsh, but Listen to what 1 John 1 verse 8 says. If we say that we have no son, no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then you go to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar 
and his word is not in us. And Paul in Romans 3 says the same thing. Both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understands. There is is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Not even one. That's me. That's you. We are guilty before God. And we cannot measure up to Christ's standard, to Christ's demand for perfection. Can you keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. Is that your answer? Pay attention to to how personal this question is. The question is not asking... Can people, can human beings keep all these things perfectly? Probably all of us would say in no wise to that. After all, that's what we confess as a church. But what happens when this question comes to you personally? Can you keep all these things perfectly? You know the answer we naturally want to give? It's not the catechism's answer. It's not in no wise. It's, it's something like this. Not perfectly, but I keep most of God's law most of the time. Or, no, but hey, nobody's perfect. Or, no, but I'm not as bad as some people. Those are the answers, congregation, we naturally want to give when our ability to keep God's law is questioned. But if those are the kinds of answers that we give, that we are giving, then either we still don't know the greatness of our sins and misery, or we've forgotten it. You see, if you truly know your misery, then you know, then you know you don't measure up in any way to this righteous standard, to this law of God, to, to the law that demands love to God and love to your neighbor. And you don't just know that in your head. You know it, you feel it, you feel the pain of it in your heart. It's not just, it, it grieves you. Not just that you haven't loved God and your neighbor perfectly. Not just that you don't love God and your neighbor perfectly. But that you can't love God and your neighbor perfectly. Those who are in the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 8, cannot please God. It's impossible. Is that your confession? Do you confess that in and of yourself you cannot fulfill the law's demand for perfection which Christ reveals in our text? That's the confession that Christ calls for. But he also calls for more than that. He calls not just for a confession of our inability, but a confession for the reason, of the reason for our inability. What's the reason? Why can't we keep all these things perfectly? For... I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The reason we can't please God, congregation, is not our hard circumstances. It's not our stress. It's not our workload or anything like that. The reason we can't please God is because we, by nature, hate him and our neighbor. It's our own fault. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8 verse 7 when he says that the reason those who are in the flesh cannot please God is because the carnal mind is enmity against God. 
for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's the devastating reality of who we are in ourselves, in our sinful and fallen nature. We are totally opposed to God and our neighbor. And left to ourselves, left to ourselves, where does that opposition bring us? Well, you have a picture of it for you in the Pharisees who resisted Christ, who rejected Christ, who looked for ways to push him away, to get rid of him. Left to ourselves, that's that's what we do. That's who we are by nature. Yes, they went so far even as to kill him. We are prone to hate God and our neighbor. If we deny that, if we say, no, I'm not, I'm not that bad, I can't be that bad, we are only continuing to resist Christ. But Christ calls us to confess it because he knows, you see, that denial and ignorance of our misery does not lead to bliss. It leads to torment. He knows. Because he, the only one who fulfilled the law's demands for perfection, endured that torment in the place of sinners. Oh, won't you then confess before God not just your inability, but also your natural inclination to hate God and your neighbor as the reason for your inability? But what about Christians? Aren't we who are in Christ new creations? Aren't we free in Christ from the condemnation of the law? And doesn't the Holy Spirit enable believers to truly begin to keep God's commandments? Yes, yes, and yes. And praise God for all of that. Let us be joyful and let us be thankful for every advance in holiness, for every victory over sin. But the fact remains, in spite of all that, that not even a converted person, this side of heaven, can keep all of God's commandments perfectly. Until the day we die, our old sinful nature remains in us. No, it no longer has, it, it doesn't have power over us anymore. That's true. But it still indwells us. And it's a battle we have to fight. We never arrive at perfection you see in this life. One summer, a couple of years ago, I put down landscape cloth and, and bark mulch in our gardens to control the weeds. And I was in the spring. We went away for the summer. I was in, we were in BC a couple of years ago, my, my first time out preaching. So we were out there for a couple of months and we came back and can you guess what we found in our front garden? Weeds. Thistles. Everywhere. They had, their, their sharp little needles had managed to cut right through the cloth. And some of them even, I, I have no idea how, even dense bushes that we had, they grew up right in the middle of, of, of the bushes. They were almost impossible, if not impossible, to root out. You see, that's exactly what happens in a believer's heart and life. Sometimes we think we've arrived. We, we think we're doing pretty good. We, we, we get comfortable. We start taking pride in ourselves. But then you see, then all oh, by grace, the Spirit comes in our lives and He shows the sin that is popping up, that is coming up through that, what we thought could keep it all out. And He devastates all of our self-righteousness. We see sin growing up, even in the good works we do. There's pride. There's harshness. 
There's selfishness. There's lack of zeal in serving God. There's lack of compassion for, for others' physical or spiritual needs. Instead of all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength being united and fully engaged to love God, there's a battle. Instead of loving our neighbor as ourselves, there's a battle. And it grieves us so that like Paul in Romans 7, we cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then with Paul, we look outside of ourselves and we look to Christ for our salvation and we look to the spirit of life for power, power once again to get back up and to continue seeking by him to love God and our neighbor. You see, that's why Christ, as our prophet, teaches us our misery not just once, but time and time again. He does it, you see, so that all the towers of our self-righteousness that we like to build will become crashing down. And so that in the ruin, as we sit in the ruin of that, we would recognize our inability to keep all of God's law perfectly. And we would recognize our inclination to hate him and our neighbor. And, so that as, and then as we feel the weight of that pressing us down, because we know that God's law pronounces a curse on everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. As that presses us down, we become silent before God. Not the silence of the Pharisees who didn't dare ask Jesus any more questions but continued to plot his destruction. No, but an ashamed silence, a sorrowful silence, a humble silence so that no more, no more is there any denial. No more is there any minimizing and downplaying our sin. No more is there any defending of our sin. It's the silence of confession. As you sit in silence, listen to the words of Jesus once more in Matthew 22. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These are the words of Christ as prophet to teach us our misery. But they are also the words of Christ, our priest, our high priest, Christ, our Savior. And he is the man, congregation. He is the man, the one who did keep this law of love perfectly all his life long. And yet, and yet, he is the man who was nailed to the cross. He is the man who from out of a midday darkness cried out those awful words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he hung. The righteous Lord perfect lawkeeper made a curse so that we so that we who are unable to keep God's law perfectly so that we who by nature 
are prone to hate God and our neighbor might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, beloved, don't you see? Ignorance of your misery isn't bliss. Knowledge of your misery is bliss. If it leads you to look outside of yourself to Jesus Christ. Well, then own your sin. Own your misery. Confess it to him, looking to him, looking away from yourself, looking to Christ and his substitutionary life and death. Because that is your only comfort. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, you have confronted us this evening with our sin and our misery. We have seen the perfection you demand. And Father, we pray that you would so work and so apply the word of God that every single one of us would answer with the catechism that we in no wise, I in no wise, can keep Christ demand perfectly. I cannot love God. I cannot love my neighbor. For I am prone to hate God by nature and to hate my neighbor. And Lord, would you then come, as we already prayed, as a son of righteousness with healing in your wings and heal, heal us of our sin, Heal us of our misery. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, let us sing from Psalter 103 all the verses.
Our doxology will be Psalter 413, both stanzas. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.